Welcome, normal people. Our topic today is resurrecting the Bible in the mainline church with our guest, none other than Walter Brueggemann. Yeah, we need a drum roll. I mean, Brueggemann, clearly uh, kind of a hero of mine, written over a hundred books, couldn't even, it would take the podcast. Actually, I've heard that in his church, the kids are quizzed not on Bible verses, but how many book titles they can remember. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I've heard that on the internet. That's great. So yeah, they just list them by number. It's actually 98 Brueggemann, (laughs) page 43. So just a real spectacular guy, one of the most influential Bible scholars of our time. Really grateful to get to talk to Brueggemann about the Bible. And and maybe what are some of the things that you've learned from Brueggemann over the years? Uh, I've I've learned, I mean, really about justice, I think, and and, and justice and the prophets, which is there. And again, in, in my background, which is probably a fairly typical evangelical-ish background, that's not always emphasized. Prophets basically predict Jesus. They don't say much about too much else, maybe a bit of a caricature, but not too much of a caricature. But what I like about Brueggemann is how he is trying to reconstruct the Bible for the mainline church. Well, why do they need that? Well, because the mainline church has passed through a modern period of biblical scholarship and taken that very seriously. The evangelical church has tended to sort of do an end around and sort of evade some of the difficult issues. But now now that the mainline church has actually passed through what, um, what Walter Wing calls the acid bath of criticism— the question is, okay, well, what do you do with the Bible? What's it there for? And that's actually the constructive question that needs to be asked in the mainline church after passing through this period of modernity. And Walter Brueggemann has dedicated his work and his writing to, to helping answer that question for the mainline church. Yeah, and I've really appreciated over the years his continued connection to the church, the Bible, you know, the metaphor. We'll talk a little bit about the compost pile of the Bible and that it's always living and active through the church. And so he never lost that connection to how this should be lived and breathed today and how it's relevant for us in, I think, really surprising ways. And I also appreciate that he's 130 years old and is doing this (laughs) podcast anyway. And he was far more coherent than Jared and I were. That's for darn sure. Absolutely. Good. Well, let's continue the conversation now with Walter. The problem is it's not a package, and it doesn't fit together. It is filled with contradictions. The the contradictions simply resist finding a formulation that can account for everything. So it requires us to, uh, in in some ways, to hold it loosely, but to take it seriously uh, without imagining that it's going to deliver a package of certitudes for us. All right. Well, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. We're just thrilled to have you here on the Bible for Normal People podcast. Um, so great. How are you? I am uh, fine. Um, I get, I'm get i old, so I get weary this time of day, but I'm good. <laughs> you're old? <laughs> I'm old. You don't, you don't know your Old Testament, Walter. There are plenty of people in the Old Testament much older than you are. <laughs> That's you know? right. <laughs> I'm surprised That's that you lack of faith. I'm just deeply moved by that. Hey, listen, let's let's get right into this. You know, we, we talk about the Bible here, and um, it's a hot topic, and a lot of people talk about what the Bible is and what do we do with it. Your whole life in the mainline church is probably different than a lot of people who might be listening here with maybe more of an evangelical or fundamentalist background. And um, t- talk to us a little bit about maybe the struggles of 
the Bible that in, in the trajectory of the mainline church, sort of where it's been. And I know a lot of your life's work is in leading it to a certain place. So help us, help us get some context for that. Well, I think that uh, the mainline uh, churches um, probably have been uh, excessively uh, captured by historical critical study. And uh, the effect of historical critical study is to uh, distance the Bible from us and to eliminate uh, the hard questions uh, that make faith scandalous. Uh, so I, my uh, uphill battle in mainline churches has uh, been to try to show the uh, spectacular ways in which the Bible is contemporary, uh, in which the Bible does not fit any of our reasonable categories, in which the Bible uh, invites us to scandalous kinds of imagination and scandalous kinds of obedience. Um, I think that the uh, counterpoint in uh, more evangelical churches uh, is uh, that uh, the Bible has been reduced to a package of uh, truths without much dynamism, and uh, that also uh, makes the Bible equally uninteresting. So I sort of have uh, taken upon myself to be uh, working on both those fronts, uh, because I get invited to a lot of evangelical settings, as I do to a lot of uh, mainline settings. Uh, and I think those are the, the twin uh, temptations, either to reduce it to a, the Bible to a rational package or to reduce it to a doctrinal package. And uh, I don't think either one of them uh, serves the Bible very well. Well, do you think that's very helpful? Do you think, Walter, that historical criticism might be an effective challenge, a positive challenge to evangelicalism uh, in its reduction of the Bible to a, a doctrinal package. Well, I, th I think that's exactly right. And I, and I think historical criticism emerged uh, 200 years ago because of the kind of uh, reductionist orthodoxy in Germany. Uh, so it is, it is, historical criticism is hugely important. The problem is uh, that mainline churches tended to stop there instead of going on to become post-critical uh, to, to say, now I understand all of these critical maneuvers that you have to make in the Bible. How do I move beyond that uh, to take this as a script for faith? Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a, uh, a two-step deal, and I think that mainline have made the first step but not the second and uh, my perception is that many more evangelical traditions have not made that first step uh, into a critical study. So with that, Walter, say, say a little bit more. You talk about, in the beginning, scandalous imagination, post-critical. Would you say that moving through the uh, historical critical process, is, a, is that a necessary step into this place of imagination and post-critical you talk about? I suspect, I, I suspect it is in some form. I think that uh, probably uh, we have overdone historical criticism, uh, and we've, uh, we've pushed it farther than is needful. Uh, but what historical criticism wants to show us is that the Bible uh, is a very complex document uh, that has developed uh, over time, and uh, you cannot uh, treat it as a kind of a, a seamless package of revelation. Uh, 
so that's that's a very important kind of awareness uh, when we come to take the Bible seriously. Uh, and I think that anyone who is really serious with the Bible has got to face that dynamism and that complexity, whether they do it through conventional historical criticism or whether they find some other way to do it. Yeah. Well, can you give us an example or two of where historical criticism has been pushed, use the phrase, too far? Well, I think uh, uh, in in terms of, um, if you take the book of Isaiah, uh, for example, um, uh, historical criticism has probably settled into the conviction uh, that there are four Isaiahs. There's the first Isaiah, second, third, and probably a fourth in uh, chapters uh, 24 to 27 or something like that. And uh, I, th- I think that to, uh, to try to pin down every piece of Scripture to a particular historical moment uh, is uh, to try to do more than we know, and I don't think it really helps us understand the text very much. So we spend a, a, an enormous amount of energy, or in the in the in the Pentateuch, uh, trying to sort out the documentary hypothesis into J, E, D, and P. Uh, I think that the we've uh, pushed that so that uh, uh, German scholars, in particular, have separated one verse into two sources, and and, all, and that kind of scholarship is still going on in Germany. Uh, and uh, I just think probably that's. Uh, too far and not helpful. On the other hand, uh, uh, historical criticism has been useful, for example, in in uh, trying to uh, understand the two creation stories and by and why it is maybe that God does not have a proper name in the first creation story, and uh, and uh, that tradition doesn't let us know God's name until Exodus six, whereas in the second creation story. Uh, God's name, Yahweh, is known from the beginning. So those sorts of things are kind of uh, helpful, I think, to see, to see yeah. uh, that we've got very different uh, uh, interpretive trajectories and interpretive angles on this uh, that have to be honored and credited uh, as uh, being uh, very different, and, and the interaction between those different trajectories uh, can be very uh, generative of our understanding. So, so recognizing the tensions without having to explain them meticulously in great detail, that's almost that's, enough, in a sense. That's right. And, and recognizing uh, that you can't explain them away or you can't solve them, uh, but you in some way have to try to live with them. Right. I mean, it's interesting how in be- the evangelical world, and I don't want to mean to paint everything with one brush here, but... It's the fact that, for example, source critics can't always agree on where sources begin and end, that the entire enterprise of seeking and working with these tensions is discredited, right? So, so well, I think that's right. I can't agree, then I, Moses wrote it all. Yes, right, right. right. I, I think that that kind of criticism has been uh, overly ambitious and uh, has tried to do things that, uh, that we really can't do. Uh, and we need to uh, we need to just let some of that be. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit more because you know we talk about uh, you know when you talk about language like too far and not helpful, it makes me think that you think the text has a different purpose because I could see a lot of evangelicals saying what's wrong with the Bible being a package of truths because the whole point is to tell us the truth and 
and uh, more people who are more interested in the or the academic world of critical scholarship saying, well, what's wrong with it being a package of uh, going down as far as we can to get as meticulous because it's about the knowledge of where these sources did come from. So when you use language like both of those aren't as helpful, it makes me think you have a different vision for what we're supposed to be using the Bible for. So can you talk about that? Well, I, I think uh, uh, the, the problem is it, it's not a package and it doesn't fit together. It is filled with contradictions. And uh, 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 the, the contradictions simply resist finding a formulation uh, that can account for everything. So it requires us to, um, to uh, in, in some ways, to hold it loosely, by which I do not mean not, not to take it seriously, but to take it seriously uh, without imagining that it's going to deliver a package of certitudes for us. Mm-hmm. And that's, what I, that's really what I want to resist. Mm-hmm. Whether it is the rational certitudes of progressives or whether it is a uh, 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 theistic certitude of uh, more evangelical people. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, following on that, are, are words like inspiration and revelation active theological categories for you for how you think about the nature of the Bible? Well, I, I find that on the whole to be uh, not very helpful categories, uh, I don't. I don't mind saying uh, that the Bible is inspired, and I don't mind saying that the Bible is re- uh, uh, revelatory. The problem with those words is that they are so loaded with all kinds of assumptions that when we use those words, we almost inevitably are misunderstood. And I, I don't. I don't use those kind of words uh, on the whole because I do not think they uh, communicate uh, very helpfully. Um, so if you, if you take the, the word, uh, inspiration, um, you, you can, uh, take that all the way from thinking that God dictated and whispered in somebody's ear the exact words, uh, to the other extreme that says, uh, well, it's a very artsy kind of book. And it is inspired the way all good art is inspired that shows us something that uh, we otherwise would not be able to see. Uh, and uh, I, I think that whole uh, spectrum of meanings for the word inspiration uh, probably is operative, but it's so slippery uh, that I don't, think, uh, I don't think it gets us very far. How about the word authority? Uh, well, I, I uh, credit the Bible with having great authority, but then I want to define what what is meant by authority. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in some ways, it's 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 the same kind of problem. My right. sense of authority uh, in my own practice is uh, that I have decided, or I have been uh, compelled or persuaded, however one wants to say that. Uh, to to take this uh, literature with utmost seriousness, uh-huh. and I am uh, obligated uh, to be engaged with it and to respond to it. Right. That's what I mean by authority. But obviously, many other people uh, use the word in um, in more scholastic ways or more authoritarian ways. 
uh, and I don't find that very helpful. Right. I mean, terms like authority and inspiration and revelation are oftentimes discussion enders rather than beginners. And um, more often than not, it's really the authority of my tradition or my interpretation of this that matters rather than really the authority of the Bible, because the Bible doesn't challenge what we think anymore. We just that, have that's exactly right. That's right. And, and and when we when we go to those uh, what I regard as rather hard categories, uh, we tend to cherry pick, uh, and uh, uh, we, we really believe that the words that we happen to like are the ones that are most deeply inspired. Right. So with that, if it's you know going kind of more on the positive end, if it's not a package of certitudes and these categories, we end up kind of uh, filling in with what we want instead of taking the Bible seriously, what would you say, what would you say the Bible is? How would you phrase it? And how, how would you talk about its use in the life of the church? Well, the, 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 the formula that I've settled on for the moment, I don't expect to, to continue it, is that the Bible is a script that is waiting to be performed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what, what I want to say by that is it's not a head trip. It's not a set of ideas, it's a set of practices. To perform means to, to uh, so I, I think of it like if you have a, uh, the score of a Beethoven symphony, uh, what the orchestra and the conductor do is to perform it. And uh, every time they perform it, it comes out differently. Uh, so the Bible is open to many performances, uh, and some of them, uh, if, if one knows enough about good music, some of those performances sort of contradict each other. Uh, and so um, uh, the way I want to understand that is that the, the Bible uh, uh, is an invitation and a summons to take this seriously and to see what my life would be like uh, if I really tried to be uh, uh, deeply and responsibly engaged with what this script is yielding. Yeah, and, and that and you model, see that formulation right. wants to cast the Bible uh, in terms of art. That is, that is, is an artistic articulation of reality. It's not a, it's not a dogmatic. It's not a moral. Uh, but it's an artistic articulation. That, that's how my mind works about it. Right. Well, and that, that formulation or that model of Scripture that you're articulating does well in accounting for the reality of diversity theologically in, in the history of the church and in the church today at any one point in time. I think that's right. Yeah. And you can, you can have an argument about, well, what did Beethoven really intend? Uh, right. But then we don't, when you go back to our score, uh, we don't know. Uh, so we are all originalists like Justice Scalia. We know the original meaning. And like Justice Scalia, the original meaning turns out to, about we, to be what we thought anyway. <laughs> be an originalist. And, uh, yes. and I, never, I never saw Justice Scalia uh, make a ruling uh, that contradicted what he thought anyway. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a great uh, seduction with the Bible. Right. I mean, so much of this is rooted in our own experience and how we read the Bible in light of that. 
And, um, you know, this is a living, breathing thing. It's not just an abstract document that gives us all the answers. We have to engage it from our point of view, from where we live and when we live and how we live. And that makes for a rotten, inerrant book. It does indeed. (laughs) But it makes for a good, I mean, you've used the analogy, Walter, of a compost pile as well as a model for scripture, which I like very much. You know, things grow out of it. And different things will grow out of this compost pile. And, and our focus is not the pile itself. <laughs> it's, it's what comes out of it. And I think That's those right. are ways of thinking about it. So. And one is often surprised by yes. a compost pile. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> talk a little bit. You, you mentioned the Scalia contradicting uh, something he already thought. What, you know, it just made me think of this phrase you um, often use around counter-testimony, the counter-testimony of Scripture. And talk a little bit about how that's been a useful concept for you as you've navigated the Bible. Well, what I what I am uh, uh, continually aware of is that the Bible um, uh, reveals, if one wants to use that that word, uh, reveals uh, uh, elements of God or of reality uh, that clash with my preconceptions. Uh, you know the the hottest topic now for an Old Testament teacher is is what to do with the violence of God, uh, and uh, uh, we prefer to think that the whole Bible teaches that God is love, uh, but you can't think that if you read the Bible. Uh, so so the big question is uh, uh, what what what'll I do with the with the testimony about the violence of God? Or the absence of God. Uh, there's a church in my neighborhood that currently has a marquee out that says, if God seems far away, you moved. But, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that uh, God comes and goes and sometimes is present to us and sometimes is absent. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't fit uh, with a, a kind of a cozy... Uh, reassuring gospel, uh, but there's ample evidence in the text uh, that that is a dimension uh, of God that was revealed or experienced uh, in the life of the community. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's um, you know continue this and switch maybe slightly. Uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how you see the relationship between the two parts of the Christian Bible? Yes, well, that's, uh, that's obviously a, a very uh, important and a very uh, difficult question. And uh, I think uh, that what we have to um, accent is that there is continuity between the Old and the New Testament, and there is discontinuity. Uh, and uh, we have to take both of those seriously, uh, the old uh, Marcionite heresy uh, that talked about the God of the Old Testament being a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament being a God of love obviously wanted to uh, uh, establish the discontinuity and uh, and thereby get rid of the Old Testament. On the other hand, the, the, the recent uh, history of salvation business uh, with uh, Oscar Kuhlmann and, and so on uh, really wanted to stress the continuity uh, so that uh, the event of Jesus Christ uh, is one more um, uh, 
and, and obviously one more major, major, major uh, event in God's history of salvation. Uh, so one could see uh, in that frame of reference that the kinds of things that God was doing in the Old Testament uh, is the kinds of things that God continued to do through the life of Jesus. Uh, and uh, I think there is no um, answer in the back of the book about that, uh, <laughs> but you have to uh, you have to take it uh, a text at a time and and uh, and see how that works. Richard Hayes has just recently published a, a very major book on uh, I think uh, it's called Echoes of the Old Testament in the Gospels, right. uh, in which he shows how. Uh, the four uh, gospel writers um, used uh, Old Testament texts in a variety of very imaginative ways. And one of the things I like very much about Hayes is that he doesn't try to produce, uh, reduce this to some uh, explanation or some pattern, uh, but they obviously exercised uh, great imagination and they used texts in uh, many, many different ways depending on uh, what they were trying to say and the story that they were telling. Uh, and and that then uh, lets you handle uh, Old Testament texts in the New Testament in a variety of ways of continuity and discontinuity. Uh, and I, and I, I think that um, that's, that is faithful uh, to the process of what the early church itself was doing uh, when it appealed to the, New, to the Old Testament. And when you say early church, you mean New Testament as well. That's correct. The, right. the community that, that created the New Testament, yes. Right. Well, let me, okay. and obviously, the, the, the early church of the New Testament obviously could not have articulated Jesus without appealing to the Old Testament. All the categories they use uh, come from the Old Testament, uh, but then they also see that uh, what they want to say about Jesus in many ways, breaks out of and violates uh, the Old Testament categories to which they appeal. So it's a very tricky process. Right. Okay, well, let, let me just, this brings up something else here in my mind. And listen, I know that you're old and tired. I don't want to tax you too much here, but here's a tricky question. What, how do you see the distinction between discontinuity and we're, in other words, where do you draw the line, let me put it this way, between discontinuity and supersessionism? Well, it's obviously very tricky uh, because I think that, that um, uh, if, you, if you push uh, discontinuity very far, you will arrive at supersessionism. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, uh, one obvious case is in Hebrews 8, where uh, you get this long quote of Jeremiah's New Covenant, uh, uh, in order to talk about the Old Covenant, the, the, the uh, NRSV translates it, it's obsolete, and the New Covenant in Jesus Christ is the one that counts. Uh, so that's, uh, that is stressing uh, the discontinuity between the Jeremiah Covenant and the Covenant of Jesus. And I think that text in Hebrews 8, uh, I, I think there are explanations that do otherwise, but I think it comes very close to supersessionism, mm -hmm. which is why I don't want to fall out on that side of the equation uh, that, the, that the continuities protect us 
from uh, supersessionism, I think. Well, maybe going on the other side of the continuity side, you know, you've done a lot of work. Uh, again, I'm going to come back to this work uh, or the word imagination on how the Old Testament texts still can be really a lively place for discussion for the church can really enrich and empower us in a lot of ways for today, very relevant today. And so maybe talk a little bit about how you bridge that gap. What's the method you use for allowing these Old Testament texts to be relevant for the church today? Well, I was, uh, I was uh, preaching in an Episcopal church um, on uh, uh, 9-11 this year. I probably wouldn't have accepted it had I noticed that. <laughs> but the Old Testament reading uh, was a text from Jeremiah. I, I think it may have been chapter 3 or 4, I'm not sure, in which it said, a hot wind blows from the east. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, obviously in Jeremiah, the hot wind from the east uh, was either Assyria or Babylon. He was talking about an invading army. Well, uh, I just laid that out about 9-11 and uh, the hot wind from the east, uh, uh, which took the form of an attack on the, on the Twin Towers in Manhattan. And, and what I said in my sermon, uh, that this text uh, invites us to think that God sent a hot wind to destroy God's holy city. And then I said, now, I'm not going to make that claim, but you might want to let this text haunt you and see what it feels like, that the hot wind came from the east because God would not be mocked. That's what I said in my sermon. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I could do that because the text let me say it, I didn't push it, but I invited the congregation to imagine some connections that they would never have imagined had it not been for the text. Right. And that's my way of of handling that particular thing. With contemporary experience in what's happening in our world. I mean, when you talk like that, Walter, you're, I mean, not not to compliment you unnecessarily here, but I think you're sort of doing what the Bible does with itself imagination, different contexts, different things happen, and you have to reinvigorate the tradition to engage what's happening here and now. That's exactly right, which is what I mean. I I like your word, reinvigorate. Uh, That's what I mean by imagination. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. How is that that different than, say, uh, other traditions that would, say, take Revelation and apply it to... Uh, particular events, particular people in political places, and sort of try to make this uh, into the world claim is how would well, they? Well, I, I, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a really important distinction to try to make. I, I tried to to be in that sermon. I tried to be careful 
to say this is poetry. It's not a mm. it's not a prediction. It's not a program. It's not a description. It's poetry, and poetry invites us to listen and then to listen and then to listen. Uh, the the kind of use that I think you're describing wants to make tight one-on-one correlations between ancient text and a particular present historical reality. And I don't want to make tight connections. Uh, so, um, and it, it may be that it may be that some people uh, that morning heard me doing that, but I was pretty careful about it uh, because I don't, I never want to do that. Uh, and I, I don't think, I don't think that the Bible lends itself to nice little clear unambiguous one-on-one connections. Mm. I I think it is an artistic articulation that invites us to mobilize our interpretive imagination. Hmm. Okay, well, here's a very non-controversial question for you. Let's talk politics. Okay. Because nothing important is really happening in the country right now as we're taping. That's right. But uh, what do you, you know, the Christian left, the Christian right, whatever, what, what is your, how, how would you explain to someone what you think a Christian posture should be toward maybe our current political climate or frankly, any political climate? Um, Does the Bible set visions and trajectories for us for how we should engage the powers that be around us? Well, I got I got a number of uh, emails from pastors recently saying, "What do you think? What do you think we ought to preach?" And of course, I don't know. But but the answer that came to me was, "Love God and love neighbor." So if you love neighbor, uh, you have to ask, um, "Who's our neighbor?" And obviously, the Bible thinks immigrants are our neighbors. The Bible thinks that our neighbors are people who need some kind of health care. The Bible thinks that our neighbors are entitled to good schools and good houses, so on, so on, so on, so on. And love of God means, uh, critically, to critique the worship of idols. Uh, And uh, we won't have agreement about what the idols are, but I think that American exceptionalism has become an idol. Mm-hmm. So uh, make America great again is an idol, uh, the way it's being uh, parsed. Uh, now, how far in a local congregation, how far one wants to go with that uh, before one uh, you know, gets into uh, turmoil one doesn't welcome, I don't know. But I think the place to begin is that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament has commanded us to God to love God and love neighbor. And we have to ask, what now does it mean to love God and what now does it mean to love neighbor? And those can become very weighty, critical guidelines for us. Uh, so I think it's easy to make a case that our society uh, is increasingly treating the neighbor as a threat and not a neighbor, and is increasingly distorting God uh, for the worship of idols. I don't think that's uh, 
a progressive or a liberal judgment. I think that's an evangelical judgment. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I believe that's the conversation we ought to be having. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think talking a little bit about, you know, talk a little bit about that, that these pronouncements politically don't really fall on the side. I mean, would you say it's also correct to say we made an idol of political parties so that we're constantly trying to put God on one side or the other sort of God is on the side of the Republicans. God is on the side of the Democrats. Um, I, I I think that's right. Yep. Yep, and I myself am tempted to that sometimes. Mm. Uh, well, how do you, you know, as something that you're tempted by in that, how do you navigate that? What do you think the the counter testimony, or how does the Bible speak to those things when you're when you're tempted by it? Well, I I think we got to uh, get beneath the, the slogans and the mantras and talk about human reality on the ground. Uh, so, for example, uh, we shouldn't be talking ideologically about immigrants. Uh, we should be talking about uh, the breaking up of families and that these are real mothers and real fathers and real children. And what do you think it feels like to break up a family? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we should be not talking uh, ideologically about health care delivery uh, but what we should be talking about is uh, why is it that a guy like I, like I am, can uh, count on seeing a good doctor, and I uh, got good insurance, and I'm not worried about anything, and what it would be like to have my old age ailments and have no coverage and not be able to see a doctor because I can't afford a doctor. Mm-hmm. That is, we got to bring the discussion down to the level of human pain and human suffering and human reality, because what we're dealing with are real people and not slogans. That's what I think. Yeah. And it also sounds like you're tying this imagination that the scripture invites also is about empathy and like the way you're talking about the imagining yourself in these particular situations is also an imagination of empathy. That's right. And I, I think it is it is imagination that imagines from me out to the other. That is, I, I ought to start uh, with my pain and my fear and my worry and say, who else, who else might have some of those fears and pains and worries? And what kind of resources do I have? And what kind of resources may some other people not have and why is that and what does the gospel ask of us right well re- religion for the betterment of other people who'd have thought it <laughs> what an insight huh? what an insight that is <laughs> well you know listen Walt, we're, we're coming here to the end of our time and i maybe just one final question if i can yeah um yeah. do you have a favorite book of the Bible or or a favorite passage or maybe a theme, something that just you keep coming back to in your own heart and mind that really connects you with God, maybe on a deep level. Well, I I think uh, probably the book of Jeremiah uh, reads to me like it was, I always told my students, it reads like it was written yesterday. It's so uh, incredibly contemporary. And as you likely know, Abraham Heschel 
showed that Jeremiah, more than any anybody else in the Old Testament, uh, entered into the pathos of God, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so the. The, the pathos of God, the fidelity of God, the infidelity of Israel, and the endless uh, negotiation uh, around those issues, uh, I think, are, are my uh, constant theme. And obviously that shows up everywhere uh, in, the, in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, how is it that uh, faithfulness is possible, and how is it uh, that we regularly violate faithfulness uh, with other agendas and other interests and so on. And I mm-hmm. think that uh, Jeremiah is uh, the most powerful articulation of that. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. That's wonderful. Thank you, Walter. Um, uh, any? Are you working on any books at this point in time in your life? Well, I have just published a book that I am glad to mention. It's called Money and Possessions in the Bible. And uh, what I tried to do was to trace through both the Old and the New Testament uh, the um, the uh, way in which money is uh, viewed and critiqued and valued. Uh, and uh, I think it is uh, one of my better books. Okay. Uh, I think I learned so much from it, and uh, I'm uh, really glad I was able to write it. So let me guess, do you think God wants us all to be rich? Yeah, he wants all of us together to be rich. The TV preachers are wrong. Oh my goodness gracious. That's gonna I know, yes, indeed. You're overhauling <laughs> my theology once again, Walter. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> the conclusion I drew is that the Bible is always situated in an economy of extraction in which powerful people are extracting wealth from vulnerable people. Yeah. And that the Bible refuses that and offers an alternative economy. Mm. Oh my. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a must read. Well, Walter, thank you very much for being our guest. We really really enjoyed it and we appreciate your time. We don't take it for granted. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank Walter. you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, thanks for listening, folks, and just a reminder if you want to learn more about Walter Bergman, You know, get your head out from under a rock. Just Google Walter Brueggemann, for heaven's sake. Pick a book and read it. One of my favorites is The Prophetic Imagination, if you're looking for a recommendation. It's nice and short, and it's just a wonderful, brilliant book. And remember to, uh, if you're interested, you can continue the conversation on the Bible for normal people with my blog and all sorts of conversations happening there. Feel free to comment, visit me on Twitter and also on Facebook. Thanks for listening. And next time, be ready for a conversation with Science Mike McHarg. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.